We started something back in September, October, talking about moving into Phoenixville with new middle school location and a, and a new home base on Bridge Street. A lot of you have been wondering, so what's going on with all that? So I, I wanted to bring you up to speed real quick. Thus far, everything seems to be going well with the middle school. They were scheduled to vote on a lease for us in November, but uh, their lawyers didn't have the lease ready in time. And then it, so it got bumped back to January. So in the next two to three weeks, Lord willing, expect me to come back and say we've signed a lease starting in March will be the Phoenixville Area Middle School Auditorium, Lord willing. Now, I say that, Lord willing, because uh, it, until something's signed, it's not done. It's not over until it's over, so p please be praying for that. The other thing is, is, for those of you who don't know, we've talked about moving the home base of our church to a, a large storefront on Bridge Street. Since we, we started that idea and started pursuing that, it's become a lot more complex and a little more expensive than we were planning. So the, the elders have actually had multiple emergency meetings on this very issue. And we actually went there and we stood in the building and we said, so, so what are we doing here? Is God leading us here or not? And we... Through prayer and through wrestling through things, we feel like this is an awesome opportunity to reach our community in a way that we could not do just through a Sunday morning facility. A way to be the church in the very center, in the very heart of the community, where the people most need to hear the gospel, where we most need to shine the light. So, having said that, until God actually slams the door in our face, we, we've decided to continually to, to pursue this, and and it looks like we could actually have a lease in hand by the end of the month. It looks like something could work out that, that it is going to going to work. Not to say it's not going to be difficult. So all that to say, things are moving ahead. These are exciting times. The the last issue is that we asked you guys in order to make these two big moves, we we really needed. Well, we had a campaign that we called the Bridge Fund, which was really just we need fifty thousand dollars. Like, so, we need $50,000. If you want to give it to us, great. And um, that's what we said. And then we left on, just to give you a context about that year in giving, here's our, our monthly totals that we're used to. Okay? So this is what we're used to over the last recent years. Our, our, on our normal month, we, in normal expenses, we need about $19,000 a month for the past five months. That's what we spent, about 19000 That's to run our church, to run our programs, run our initiatives. All the things that happen at GVF, that's what it costs. The most we've ever given, I've looked at the records for 16 years, the most we've ever given in any one month is, is this line right here. It's $43,257. We asked you for $50,000 on top of the normal giving. So we knew it was kind of going to be a stretch. We knew it was a little bit ridiculous. But we asked just in faith, we'll see what God does. And you guys gave $67,498. To put that in context, that's $48,000 more than we have in budgeted expenses for the month. So 2000 off, but I'll take it. <laughs> that's that's pretty stinking awesome. So let me let me um here's what I see right now. And what I want you to see. I see that God has given us he's he's led us in some very clear timing uh and some very clear ways. He's led us to these two locations 
that that could allow us to serve in a way that we've never served before, to reach people in a way that we've never reached before, to, to reach people that we would never normally reach in this location, and at a scale that this church has not seen for at least 17 years at this point. I see that our budget, our resources are such that we can not only move into the facility, but, but we, sh- we should be able to move into the facility and, and launch new initiatives. We, we can... I have a news flash. Oh, 2,500 just came in. <laughs> we reached the goal! <laughs> well, there you go. So bump that up just a little bit more. We reached our goal. Here's the point. Stuff like that happens all the time here. <laughs> These two locations, we have a budget, we have, um, and, and I brag about you guys all the time, we have a church of gifted, skilled, passionate people. We are a small church, but we are a gifted, gifted church. We have leaders in our church. So we have these locations we're called to. We have the church. We have the budget, the resources. I've been meeting with five pastors in our area. There's six different churches that we that have come together that we've been talking and praying and plotting for one common goal. And the goal is simply this. It's that every man, woman, and child in the greater Phoenixville area would have a chance to hear the gospel and respond. That's our goal. These six churches have started working together. The leadership started praying together. So I see these churches working together, talking about doing a, a an area-wide outreach, an outreach at a, at a level and that has, has never happened, at least in recent history, in this area. And I see God opening up all these doors. So when I see all these pieces coming together, I'm pretty excited. But there's one thing that I see missing from this equation, and it has nothing to do with money or facilities or really nice buildings, and it's it's one thing that really comes in two pieces. It's prayer and fasting. I do not know of any revival, any movement, any significant work of God in the present time or in church history that was not born out of prayer, and particularly prayer and fasting. I don't know of any. All of these things are things that we can concoct, things that we can control, things that we can do. But if prayer and fasting is not part of it, I don't know what's going to come of it. So today I want to make a suggestion. And that's all it is. Uh, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is not even thus saith Paul. And you're going to hear all the reasons why I'm, I'm, this is seriously just a suggestion. I'm going to suggest that this spring, we as a church, that God might be calling some of us to come into a concentrated season of prayer and possibly even regular fasting. That now might be the time. It's not something I can command. It's not a duty. It's not something that I can tell you to do. This has to be God prompting you in your heart to join in. But if it doesn't happen, I don't know what is going to happen. So just before we jump into this, um, let me say a few preliminaries. 
I feel like God's laid this on my heart. And as we begin this new year, it's something I would like you to consider. But before we get into any details about what fasting is or what it looks like, yes, fasting is going without food. But before we go into any of that, what that might even look like, um, I, I want to, before any of you jump on this emotional bandwagon, because I know as soon as I just said that, and in that pregnant pause, I know what happened. There were a few of you who were like, yes, I'm going to pray and fast for 40 days straight, and you've never fasted before in your life. God bless you. <laughs> and then others were like, that's dumb. So what should we have for lunch? <laughs> So before we jump into emotional responses or just jump on some bandwagon, uh, let me start out by doing this. Let me tell you everything that's wrong with my idea and every reason why you should not fast and you don't want to fast and it's too risky. It's not something we should consider. And if you still want to fast afterwards, then maybe God's calling you to fast. Maybe God's calling us to fast. Okay. Prayer and fasting, they come together like peas and carrots, right? Prayer is the easy part, right? It's the easy part, and yet let me tell you what's wrong with it. I'm going to ask you to give up your time, and I know you guys, you, nothing is more precious to you than your time, and you have very, very little of it. And I'm going to ask you to sit and talk to an invisible person who may or may not do what you ask him to do. It's not very productive. It won't check anything off your to-do list. And here's the kicker. Prayer's the easy part. Fasting's much worse. Fasting doesn't just take your time. It actually makes you less effective, less productive. It slows you down and it can ruin your perfect schedule. At times, it can make you feel worse. Unlike prayer... We are under no obligation to fast. The Bible actually commands us to pray. So that, you know, some of you are going to pray anyways because you feel so stinking guilty. i got to pray. God said I had to. But God doesn't say you have to fast. Nowhere. Read the scriptures and look. Nowhere in the scriptures does he command Christians to fast. Now, sure, you can go to the Sermon on the Mount and say, Jesus says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So it kind of assumes, not if, but when you do it. He assumes that you might do it. Assumes that you would do it, maybe. And sure, you can go to, you know, Acts, a couple places in Acts, especially Acts 13, where you see the apostles and prophets sitting around and they actually fast. We see an example of that. And sure, we can see through church history that there are example after example after example of every branch of Christianity. Christians down through the ages have fasted. But just because they did it doesn't mean you have to. Doesn't even mean that you need to. In fact, if you look at the scriptures and the few places that it actually teaches on fasting. So you go Isaiah 58, Zechariah chapter 7, Matthew chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. And you say, what does the Bible teach us on fasting? Let me tell you what it teaches. It teaches that God seems to question the motives of anyone who would consider fasting. Okay, here's Zechariah chapter 7. I think I have this. The people of Bethel come to these prophets and they ask, should we mourn and, and fast in the fifth month as we've done for so many years? So this was a regular fast that they had done for over 70 years at this point. 
That every year, uh, it's called, they still do it to this day, Jews do. It's the uh, 9th of Av, you might have heard it. It's, it's, it's usually in July or August, commemorates the, the destruction of the temple. Every year they would practice this fast. So they come to the prophets and say, you know, should we do this? And, and what does God do? How does God answer this? He says, ask all of the people of the land and the priest. When you fasted and mourned in the 5th and the 7th months of for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Now when the God who knows everything asks you a question, you know you're in trouble. So tell me, what was it really for me that you fasted? The answer is obviously no. I fasted to impress someone. I fasted to lose weight. I fasted because I thought that if I starved myself, I could manipulate God. I fasted because I thought it, it would somehow balance out all the bad stuff that I did in my life. I fasted to make myself feel better. Was it really for me that you fasted? No. The answer, not only in Zechariah, but in Isaiah 58, Matthew chapter 6, and Colossians chapter 2. In all the passages that actually teach on fasting, why do you fast? The answer is you don't fast for God. Fasting is a risky business. It's difficult. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul will actually pick up this theme. He's going to talk about fasting and people who say, don't eat, don't touch, don't do this. You need to be really hard on your body. Colossians chapter 2, he, he writes this. Such regulations, things like fasting, indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do you hear what he's saying? God is not impressed when you make up rules like fasting and then you, you, you succeed at your own rules. Fasting does not change the very thing that God wants. God wants your heart. So you can fast all you want. Doesn't matter to God. That's self-imposed worship. Starving your body cannot change your heart. So Isaiah 58, Zechariah 7, Matthew 6, Colossians 2, they all cry out, fasting is risky. It's dangerous. Be careful. You can deceive yourself so very easily. It can make you think that you're pleasing God when in fact God is not impressed. It can make you think that you've conquered sin in your life when in fact you've not done any such thing. It can make you think that you're righteous because you are self-righteous. Fasting is a great, great way to deceive yourself. So, summarize, fasting will make you less productive. It will slow you down. It might mess up your weekly schedule. It is not commanded by God. It can be dangerous to your soul. And I want you to consider fasting this spring. So the question we have to ask, anybody sold? Some of you are like, come on, Anderson. Do you have any touch with reality? Have you been reading those old books too much again? You want to re revive this like medieval practice where we, what, next you're going to say, I, now I want you to beat yourself with a whip. 
Do you have any idea what my schedule's like? Do you know how precious my time is? I, I can hardly pray for ten minutes, and you want me to fast for one or two meals and devote that time to prayer for God? You want me to mess up my work schedule? Do you know how, how carefully balanced my life is right now? Do you know how fragile my walk is with God? And you want me to do something risky? So the question that I want to start with, given what we've just seen, and that I wanted to be completely upfront with you, fasting is risky. And it might not be rewarding. The question I want you to ask is, why would anyone want to fast? Notice I said want to fast, because the only reason you'd fast is because you want to. Why would any of you, why would any of us today want to fast? It's not a duty, it's not commanded, it doesn't impress God, and it doesn't make you more righteous. So let me tell you a story. Second Chronicles chapter 20. So after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, some of the Minuites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. You guys know Jehoshaphat? He's this king of this tiny little place called Judah. At this time, Judah is at its smallest, weakest. So men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. That is right around the corner. Do you get the picture? Tiny little country cannot defend itself. And this vast three-nation army is right around the corner coming down on them. And here's the question. What are you going to do, Jehoshaphat? If we run, they'll catch us. They're too close. They'll catch us and they'll cut us down. If we surrender, they'll make us slaves and they'll, they'll make us just wish that we were all dead. And if we fight, we don't stand a chance. So what do you want to do, Jehoshaphat? Verse 3. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. He said, I want to pray. And he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. I want to pray and fast. That's your plan. You want to talk to an invisible person who may or may not do what you ask him to do. And then you want to stop eating food. You know that when you don't eat food, it actually makes you weaker. You know, when you don't eat food, you can't think as clearly. That, that's your plan. There's an army coming to destroy everything we have and take all that we have. And you want to fast and pray. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said and prayed, O oh Lord, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And all the men of Judah, with all their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Why are you just standing there? Why do you want people to fast and pray? Why would anyone want to fast and pray? Because you're out of options. May, may I suggest to you that the only reason you would fast and pray is when you can't save yourself. When you know that you can't do what needs to be done. They can't save themselves. We are powerless. We are desperate. Fasting is born 
out of desperation. They're desperate, so so they cry out to God, but not just with their voices, and not just with their minds, and not, not just with songs. They cry out with their whole body, body and soul. God, I need you like I need food. If you don't come through right now, we will die. If you don't step in right now, if you don't lead, we don't know where we're going. If you don't act, there's nothing we can do. If you don't save, we're damned. We're damned. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What happens then? Verse 14. Jehoshaphat finishes praying. Then, at that very moment, the Spirit of the Lord came upon a prophet. And he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, for this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. That's what he says. Now go home. Go to bed. Sleep well. God's got it covered. So the next morning they get up and, and they're supposed to go out through these city gates. They're supposed to march out and see that the Lord has already defeated them. So the next morning they get up, they open up the gates, and this unprotected group of Israelites go out. And you know what their only protection was? Jehoshaphat sent some singers with them. I want you guys to sing them. And, and they sang a song that we actually still sing today. It's an ancient, ancient hymn. Today we sing it like this. Give thanks to the Lord, God and King. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. They're marching out there defenseless to face a vast army. Sing praise. Sing praise. Verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men, Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah. And the three armies turned from one another. Verse 24, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked over the vast army, they saw only dead bodies. No one had escaped. God did what they could never do. They were desperate for direction and God led. They were powerless and God showed up in power. They're singing and God defeats an army. So we see this. I want you to see this. It's a real simple pattern. God's people become desperate or are desperate. They fast and then God leads. He speaks. He acts. He saves. We see this. Again and again, if you pull back just a little bit in the scriptures, you'll see this pattern. God's people are desperate. They fast and God leads. He speaks. He acts. He saves. First Samuel chapter 7. The Israelites are repeatedly devastated by the Philistines. Their own sins are catching up with them. They're destroying their own lives. And for 20 years, they're oppressed. They're suffering for 20 years. Finally, they become so desperate that they what? They fast. God speaks through the prophet Samuel. 
And then he saves them miraculously from the Philistines and it enters in a new era of peace and blessing. 1 Kings 19, Elisha has convinced himself that the whole world is against him. And to be fair, most of the world is against him. He feels utterly alone. He's literally running for his life. And it says this in verse 4. He came to a broom tree in the middle of the desert. He sat under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Do you know what that prayer is? I'm alone and I've failed. I give up. He says, well, first an angel came and fed him and then he fasted for 40 days and God showed up. God spoke in a whisper and God led him on a mission that would then change the course of history. Esther chapter 4. The Israelites are threatened with genocide. So what does Esther say? Fast. They fast for three days. God uses Esther to change the heart of the king and the course of history is changed. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, the prophet, he's sitting there one day having his quiet time. He's reading his Bible and he opens up to Jeremiah chapter 25. And when he gets to that section about God has proclaimed 70 years for captivity and then he'll return his people, Daniel stops and, and he starts doing some math in his head. 70 years. That's almost up. We've been in captivity for 66 years. In just a few years, God could save it. God could do the impossible. But right then it looked impossible. The Israelites had been destroyed. They'd been scattered all over the Persian Empire. And, but God's word said that in 70 years, he would bring them back. He would bring back his people. So you know what Daniel did? He responded by confessing his sins. Confessing the sins of his people. Praying and fasting. What's the next line? Do you guys know? While you were still praying, God sent me, says Gabriel. Gabriel shows up and shows him not only that God's word will come true, he will return his people, but he shows him what he's really waiting for, the story of the Messiah coming. Two more. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. So, if you're going under a great test, what do you do? Well, Jesus fasts. Now, this is odd. If I were being sent into the desert to be tested by Satan, I'd be like packing power bars, energy drinks. I mean, if I'm going to be tested by Satan, I want Starbucks in my veins. But what does Jesus do? With his whole self, with his mind, his heart, and even his appetites, he declares that he will not rely on his own strength or his own words. He shows us what true fasting is. That fasting is this, that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That Jesus, the one person who could actually defeat Satan, doesn't do it in his own strength. He doesn't complete and utter dependence on God. Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch is desperate for God's leading. The times are violent. The church is persecuted. What do we do, God? Where do you want us to go? What's our next initiative? What's our next program? Do you want us to move into Phoenixville or not? So what do they do? They worship, they pray, and they fast. 
And God speaks to them, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Now, this might just sound like another prayer meeting to you, but it's hard to overstate the impact that that one prayer meeting has had on the world. You know, until that time, the church was just this small little group that had spread across part of Palestine. From that one prayer meeting, the Apostle Paul is sent on his first missionary journey into the heart of the Roman Empire. From that one prayer meeting, at that one small insignificant church, the gospel would spread across the whole globe. Because of that one prayer meeting, because they prayed and fasted, that church got the privilege of being the church to lead a worldwide missions movement that changed the course of history. God's people become desperate. God, I need you to lead me. God, I need you to protect me. God, I need you to save me. God, I'm tempted. And so they fast. And God leads. God speaks. God acts. God saves. Do you see it? It's everywhere. And that's just in the Bible. It's everywhere through the course of history. It's imprinted on the Psalms that we went through. Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. In fact, it changes the very language of how we pray to God. If you read through the Psalms, Psalm 42, for example, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, my soul is satisfied as with the richest of foods. Psalm 36, worshipers, what do they do? They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of delights. Fasting gives us the most powerful language for saying, God, I need you. God, I need you now. God, if you don't show up, nothing will happen. God, if you don't move, if you don't act, if you don't save, we can't do it. So this pattern is really clear as you go through the scriptures. But the other thing that's really clear is Isaiah 58, Zechariah chapter 7, Matthew chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. It's crystal clear that the act of fasting in and of itself has no power. Starving yourself does not impress God, and starving yourself does not give you secret powers. People talk about fasting being the uh, atomic bomb of spirituality. I don't know about you, but I'm just really uncomfortable with comparing Fasting to a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> it doesn't give you secret powers, friends. You can't like suddenly walk on clouds. You won't become mystical. You'll be hungry. That's what you'll be. <laughs> really hungry. That's what Jesus was when he fasted 40 days. It says that classic line, and he was hungry. I guess so. So if fasting does not impress God, then why does he seem to work when his people fast? If God doesn't really delight in people starving themselves, then why why does he keep responding to this over and over again? May I suggest to you that maybe fasting is not the issue that we need to focus on. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's an outward thing that we can see. What if fasting is just an expression of people who depend on God for everything, who are desperate for God? What if that's what God really wants? A people who know and believe and live and ache with everything in them that apart from you, I can do nothing.
What if God is most glorified in the people who are awakened to the reality that they need him for everything? All fasting does is it puts you in a place where you know how desperate you are for God. It puts you in a place where you know it's not just some spiritual reality, but it's everything that if God doesn't come through, you're damned. If God doesn't act, if he doesn't move, there's nothing you can do. So why would anyone want to fast? Let's take it back to this question and finish here. Why would any of us ever want to fast? No one who is in control of their life would ever want to fast. Let me be clear. If you are in control of your life, then you can just say, thanks, Paul. I'm good. No one who thinks that they can save themselves or fix their own problems would have any need to fast. No one who believes that God owes them something would ever want to fast. If anyone like that fasts, then, then you're in big trouble. That sets off all kinds of alarms. Isaiah 58, Zechariah 7, Matthew chapter 6. The person who wants to fast is the person who's given up. The person who is desperate for God to work, who prays, we don't know what to do. Here's the thing. I've talked to you guys. Do you know how many times I've heard you say, we don't know what to do? I think you guys are desperate. Not all of you, but many of you. You're desperate. We don't know what to do about our marriage. It's broken and, and we cannot fix it. We've tried. We've been to the counselors. We've done everything we can. And if God does not act, there is no hope for us. We don't know what to do about our kids. Like we can't make decisions for them. We can't protect them anymore. I can't make them love Jesus or make a good decision. We don't know what to do. If God doesn't save, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do about my job. I can't control it anymore. It's completely beyond me. I don't know what to do about my relatives, my father, my mother, who do not know Jesus. And mock my faith. And I've prayed and I've shared and I've brought them to church and I've done everything I can. And we don't know what to do about it. We don't know which way God's leading us. We're desperate. I don't know, should I take this job? Should I move here? Should I be here? Should I, should I plant right here? I don't know what to do. I don't know where God's leading us. And they're desperate for God to lead them. I don't know what to do. I've struggled with lust or anxiety or a critical spirit my whole life. And I've tried. I mean, I've gone through your programs and I've gone to your Bible studies and I've memorized the scriptures. And I don't know what to do. I give up. If God doesn't do something, I will never overcome this sin, period. Tell me, have you tried fasting yet? Have you cried out your desperation to God? God, I don't know what to do. With my whole body, with my mind, my appetite, 
and my heart, God, if you don't save my marriage, if you don't save my kids, if you don't save my family, if you don't save me, I'm hopeless. I hope that some of you are desperate enough. I hope to see God move. You know what my prayer is? We got all the pieces in place. We got the new facilities. We've got the budget and the resources. We've got local churches working together. Now, if we would be a people who are desperate for God to move in us and our community, that we would be desperate, that we would fast, and that we would see God lead. We would hear God speak. We would see God act, and we would see God save in a way that everyone who sees it says, God worked. And God is glorified.